open up to 2 Chronicles chapters 19 and 20 tonight. All right, we're going to continue to look at King Jehoshaphat, and it seems to be a theme running through these past couple chapters and through his, his reign is that his uh, business relationships are not always great choices. And we'll continue to see some of that here in these two chapters. Uh, other than that, he was a really, really godly king, really had a heart after God, and we'll also see some of that tonight as well. So we're going to start in Second Chronicles chapter 19, starting in verse 1. And it says, Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. Remember, he's coming from having that uh, conflict with uh, King Ahab and as they went against the enemies and tried to come together. And remember, Ahab died by the hands of those enemies. And uh, he tried to set up Jehoshaphat, but now we see Jehoshaphat is coming back safe to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of uh, Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you, and that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. So Jehoshaphat uh, dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim and and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. So here we see Jehoshaphat's alliance with Ahab probably caused some of the people in that nation to backslide, seeing him ally himself as a godly king with a very ungodly king in Ahab. And, uh, and that happens when we align ourselves with people who are ungodly. There's always consequences in that. And often than not, the influence is usually the evil person that usually has more influence on you than you do on them a lot of times. And we've got to be careful with those type of relationships. But it also said that even with that, what he did with going with Ahab, there was still some good that was in there. So to, even though he did some things that were wrong, God sprinkled some mercy uh, on Jehoshaphat's uh, life because he did want a true worship and a true uh, fellowship with, with the true and living God. So we see God sprinkling a little bit of mercy on him here as he says, nevertheless, good things are found in you that you have removed the wooden images from the land. Remember, he was removing all the idols and all the, the false worship that was in Judah. So he was still wanting to do the right things for God. He just got mixed up with a bad business relationship with Ahab. But not only that, it was a family relationship because, remember, his son married Ahab's daughter. So you had that relationship there, too. That was not necessarily a match made in heaven, per se. And then it goes on in verse 2. It says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Now, that makes it seem like we should have nothing to do with those who don't believe. Because those who don't believe are wicked in heart. They're unbelievers. They hate the Lord. They don't want to come to salvation, a lot of them. And it makes it seem like we should have no dealings with them. But that's not what what he's saying. We have to love those who are unbelievers. We need to love them back to Christ. We need to love them to their Savior and show them the way. We do have to have relationships with them. A lot of us work amongst them every day. So we need to be a light for them, but that does not mean that we approve of their sin and approve of their evil doings. So that's what he's saying here. Yeah, Jehoshaphat should 
have some dealings with him, should have love for him. Because in Leviticus 19, verses 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And he talks about your people. The northern kingdom of Israel was still Jewish people. was still part of, of they, they, were, they were brothers and sisters. And they still needed to have a love for them, but they needed to watch not to get involved with the evil ways. Also in Deuteronomy 19.34, it says, The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So we have unbelievers amongst us, and we need to show them love, but that love does not extend into doing evil with them. And that's where Jehoshaphat made the mistake. Whenever he went up with Ahab into the war, into, into the battle, he should never, never have done that. It never been part of that. But we see here that God does have mercy on him because of the good things that he was doing and his heart was in the right place. We think about David, how David was a man after God's own heart. And he did evil things. He had adultery. He, he committed murder. He did these things, but yet his heart was still in the right place. And God found, uh, was able to give him forgiveness. And David was able to accept that forgiveness because his heart was right. And we'll see here with Jehoshaphat later on that his sons will end up paying for some of these uh, misdealings that he had with these people. So we're moving on to verse 5. And it says, Then he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And listen to verses 6 and 7. And he said to the judges, Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Now therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, nor taking bribes. I read this, and I wish this was posted in every law school, on every judge's bench in the world. Because how many times we have corrupt lawmakers and judges, we see it in, in our news today. It says here at the end of verse 7, they have no partiality nor taking bribes. And we know this goes on day in and day out in our judicial system. It does, unfortunately. And it's saying here that you're not judging alone. That the judgment you're making is not for man, but it's for the Lord. And in Colossians 3.23, it says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. We can take these two verses and, and not only look at it as when he's talking about judging, but living our own life, that the life we live is not for us or for man, but it's for God, and that we shouldn't show partiality, that we shouldn't take bribes, that we should live our life with integrity, we should live our life in truth. So these, he, was, he was setting the precedence for these judges as, he, as they were to go out and judge the people and, and to bring order to the people of Judah. And Moses had set up judges and set these things up as well. And, and as, as, uh, so he's kind of following in that, in that concept. And, and notice the emphasis on God here in these, in these passages. They said they were to judge for God. They weren't to judge for man. They were to judge for God. They were to let the fear of God be on them. 
So having the fear of God, knowing that God is watching these judgments and presiding over these judgments, they should have had a healthy fear of God, knowing that I need to judge in the right way. I need to judge in truth. I need to handle myself in the right way because God is watching what I'm doing. They were also to recognize they were also to recognize that in making these decisions on his behalf, talk about God, that they that there was no iniquity in God, no no unrighteousness. And also that they were to do it unpartially, that they were to not have partiality to where I'm going to choose this type of people over this type of people when I make the judgment. There should have been none of that in it. But it should be for, for the way God would have set it up. In verse 8, it says, Moreover, in Jerusalem, for the judgment of the Lord, for controversies, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests, some of the chiefs, uh, chiefs' fathers of Israel, when they returned to Jerusalem, and, the, and, and he commanded them, saying, thus, uh, thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with loyal heart. Whatever case comes to you from your brethren who dwell in the cities, whether of bloodshed or offenses, against the law or commandments, against statutes or ordinances, you shall warn them, lest they trespass against the Lord, and wrath come upon you and your brethren. Do this, and you will not be guilty." And take notice, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all the matters of the Lord. And Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. Also, the Levites will be officials before you. Behave courageously, and the Lord will be with the good. So here they're kind of setting up a supreme court, if you will, for the nation of Judah to make the big decisions. So each community would have judges and such in it. And then for the big decisions that needed to be made, we had a higher court that they would end up going to. And note that some of the same, same, uh, same things, some of the same statutes that he gave to these judges were similar to the ones of the, I guess you could say, the lower courts. That they were to act in fear or reverence of God whenever they made these, these judgments. They were to act faithfully in their judgments. They were to do so with a pure and unbiased motive or intent. And we have, we have here a clear indication of what God requires of us in our dealings in everyday life. Because we have to make decisions and we have to, sometimes at work, make judgments on certain and have certain calls we have to make at work or in our life as families. And we need to do it the same way. In fear of the Lord, we need to be faithful to the Lord in making these calls, unbiased in our calls. So he was setting up this system. Now as we move into Second Chronicles, it takes a kind of a turn here. And in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20, and it starts in verse 1, it says, It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and the others, uh, others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you. From beyond the sea, from Syria, and they they are in Hezazan, Tamar, which is in En Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all of Judah. So we had news of an invasion coming. Three, basically, three different com- countries coming after him 
to invade in Judah. And he, they said that he was in fear. But what did they say shortly after that, whenever he said he was in fear? It says, and Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. That is the right response when fear comes into our lives. Set ourselves to seek the Lord. He didn't, he didn't set himself to seek uh, counsel from others at first. He didn't, he didn't set to think of his own schemes on how he can get out of this. But the first thing he did was what? Set himself to seek the Lord. Now remember his son, who was another great king, had feet, issues with his feet, many other issues. And towards the end of his run, what did he do? He didn't seek the Lord first in the, in the actions he took. He decided just to go on his own actions. And they end up paying, he ended up paying dearly for that. He ended up paying with his life. So it's always good if we do have fear to seek the Lord first. And he did the, the exact, the right thing to do was to seek the Lord. And in verse uh, 4 it says, So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. So the entire nation is coming together to seek the Lord. And that, that's a great thing. I would love to see the United States come together and seek the Lord. We could maybe have a revival start from that. In verse 5, it says, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, and Jerusalem and in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord God, our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms and, and the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might? so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of his land, of this land, before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you. In our affliction, you will hear and save. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against the great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Looking at this prayer, this is, this is, a, this is a great model of a prayer for whenever we get into hard situations too. We can ask the Lord the same thing, reminding him of what he has already done for us. In verse 6, it says that God was all-powerful in both heaven and earth and can do whatever he wanted. This acknowledging that God is powerful, that he has, he's a creator of heaven and earth, and that he can do whatever he wants. In verse 7, it tells us that the land had been given to them by God. That this land that was coming under attack was given to the nation of Israel through Abraham. That this was rightfully their land and that it shouldn't be taken, that God shouldn't let these other nations take it from his people. In verse 8, they talk about the sanctuary that was built for him and that his name is in. Saying, Lord, if these, if these people 
come and take this land, well, what will happen to your sanctuary? Lord, we know that your name is in here. What will happen to it? In verse 9, it says that God had confirmed that he would hear his people's prayer and that it would be prayed in the house. So any time that they would face judgment, they would run to the house of God and, and drop to their knees and pray to him, Lord, we, we, we're needing your help. And they knew that they would get an answer from him. In verses 10 and 11, they talk about the people that were coming against them. And that some of these people were blood relation to Israel. These are your Esau and, and, the, and, the, and the brothers of, of, the, of the 12 uh, of Jacob's son, 12 sons. This is, this is their family. So now they're having to go against them, even though God had actually spared them when they were coming out of Egypt. And in verse 12, they admitted that they had no power apart from God. I think that's one of the most powerful statements we can make is that, Lord, we don't have any power apart from you. That you are our everything. And the nation of of Judah and Jehoshaphat is saying this to God. Spurgeon said of this prayer, said, but it is the most powerful form of prayer just to set our case before God. Just to lay bare all our sorrow and all our needs and then say, Lord, there it is. That's all we can do is lay it at the foot of the cross. Whatever our problems are, whatever sorrows we have, struggles we have, often we're powerless to do anything about it, but if we just lay it at the cross, lay it at his feet, Lord, here it is. I don't have the power to do it. I know you do. And just let him work. And that's what, that's what Judah and Jehoshaphat is facing right now. They know they're powerless in the face of their enemies right now. That the enemies they have are, are too numerous for them in the physical realm to be able to defeat, but they know they have a God that is bigger than that. And so they're, they're laying themselves down. And then at the end of verse 12, after they say this prayer, what do they do? They turn their eyes to God. And that's where our eyes should always be facing, towards God. In our good times and bad times, we should always be facing God. So if your eyes are facing other people, other circumstances, take it off of them, put your eyes on, on Jesus. And he'll walk you and get you through it. Amen. And verse 13 goes on and says, Now all of Judah, with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehazel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, and the son of Mattaniah, the Levite of the son of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all of you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid or dismayed because of the great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God. Amen. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight this battle. Position yourself, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Now what a comforting statement is that, that the Lord is with you as you go into battle. That should bring us great hope and great comfort. 
And we're seeing that, that Jerusalem and, and Judah is getting this, this confirmation that they're going to win this battle. That the Lord is actually going to win this battle for them. And I like the fact here, too, that they, they start off where it wasn't just the men of Judah in Jerusalem there, but they had all the family with them. They had the little ones, the wives and their children, all stood before God as one, united as one, worshiping God, asking him for his provision, asking him for, for their protection, all as one. And now God is going to grant that to them. And in verse 15, it says, For the battle is not yours, but it is God's. What a comfort to know that when I am overwhelmed and outnumbered, it seems like defeat is certain that the battle's not mine. The battle belongs to the Lord. If we just lay out like Spurgeon said, Lord, there it is. This is the battle I'm facing right now. And knowing that he comes back, the Lord comes back and says that the battle's not yours, but it's mine. That I'll take care of those battles for you. I'll fight the battle for you. And as long as we're standing in that position where we're positioned in Christ, he's going to fight those battles for us. Whether it's health, finances, whatever struggle, family, work, our own mind sometimes. He's going to fight those battles for us, and we just need to not worry about those, those things. Hum, humanly, human-wise, we want to worry about all these different things that attack us. But just go back right here to Second Chronicles 20, where it says, For the battle is not yours, but God's. And just remind yourself of that. And let the Spirit work in you to, to keep you on that track. Verse 18, it says, And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all of Judah and his inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. They just got good news that they were going to win the battle. How about the war we've won already because of Christ? That the battle's already won for us. We should be on our face worshiping God. In the small victories, the large victories, and alternately our eternal victory that we had there on the cross, that he provided for us. We should be just as excited as Jehoshaphat and his people who are hitting their face, praising God because they know the battle is going to be won. And in verse 19, it says, Then the Levites uh, of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Kohathites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a voice loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and your inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord uh, your God, and you shall be established. So it's telling me if I believe in God that I will be established. The opposite is true, is that if I don't believe in the Lord, I won't be established. Hebrews eleven six says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe he is, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Are you a believer in God? Do you diligently seek him? Then if that's the case, you're established in him. You're set. And the Lord's going to fight the battles for you. So as we look at the men of faith throughout time, 
there's one thing that's in common. They would believe in what they couldn't see, the true and living God. A lot of people want to just go off of their senses, their, their five senses, you know, what they can smell, touch, see. But through the lenses of faith, you can see the blessings that God has brought to us. You can see the battles he's already taken from us. In that prayer earlier, he would talk about how, he, how they delivered him from Egypt and all the stuff God did for them already in the past. We each have a history with God, and we can look back at battles in, in, in times where he delivered us. And that should build our faith up and, 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 and be even more established in, in Christ because we've seen what he's done for us. So, Jehoshaphat said, even with the enemies around him, believe in the Lord. Even when times are getting hard and it seems like there's no way out of your situation, Believe in the Lord. Verse 21, it says, And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of the holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now hold up. They're going to war, but they're going to put the choir before the army. That doesn't make it doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Spiritually, however, it makes a lot of sense. Because there's so much victory that we get from praising and worshiping the Lord. Just laying our hearts out in worship and praise to him. That's what brings the victory. That's what can uplift our faith in him. And have us do great and bigger things for him. Is when we constantly are praising him. Even in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the storm. We're praising him. And Jehoshaphat was so faithful that they were going to get this victory. He put the choir before the army as they went into battle. And to the average Joe, that probably seems pretty, pretty ridiculous. But through the lenses of, lens of faith, it was not ridiculous at all. And we're going to see God bring them this victory. Verse 22 says, Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord said a bit, uh, ambush against the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end to the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. What a miracle of God right there. Going in with the choir and there's confusion. The enemy is confused when we start praising God when we're in the middle of of a battle or in the middle of a struggle and we stop and we start rejoicing and praising God. He's like, wait, you're in the middle of a battle. Why are you singing songs of praise to God? You're struggling right now and he'll try and condemn us, but we continue to sing and praise God and worship him in the midst of the battle and the enemy is going to have to flee. He's going to flee in confusion as we see these enemies here of Judah getting confused and taking each other out. Because they didn't know what to make of this joyful noise that was coming towards them in the battle. It, it, I mean, just come on a choir going before the army that just doesn't seem right. But in the eyes of God, it was everything that was needed to win that battle. Amen. Verse 24 says, so when Judah came to a place uh, overlooking the wilderness, they looked towards the multitude. And there were uh, there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. 
When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they had stripped off, of the, uh, off for themselves, more than they can carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of uh, Berka, for there, were there, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the place was called the Valley of Berka until this day. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with string instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. So here we see they go to Barca, the Valley of Barca, which means blessing. They had just had a great victory. God blessed them with the spoils of the land, spoils of war. And now they're going to do what? Rightfully praise the Lord again and worship him and thank him for the blessing that he had just gave him. And when we have our victories, that's the right position to be in, giving praise and, and glory to God for the victory that he has given us. In verse 31, it says, as we finish out this chapter, it says, so Jehoshaphat was king over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azabah, the daughter of uh, Shelhi. And he walked in the way of his father Asa and did not turn aside from, from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Nevertheless, so here we have some shortcomings. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for as yet the people had not directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. Now the rest of the acts of Je- Jehoshaphat, uh, first and last, indeed they are written in the book of Jehu, the son of Hanani which is uh, mentioned in the book of the kings of Israel. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahazai, Ahazai, king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. And he allied himself uh, with him to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships in Ezon Geber. And Elizer, the son of Dabva of Morsha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahazah, the Lord has destroyed your works. Then the ships were wrecked, so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. So we see a mighty man of God for large portions of his reign doing the right things, but two things at the end are held against him. His inability to entirely rid the land of the high places. He did a good job of getting rid of a lot of the idol worship and stuff there, but he was never able to get rid of it all. And his alliance with Ahab's son and also Ahab, as with his son, as they go to embark on getting more gold, he seemed to not have learned his lesson from teaming up with Ahab to begin with. But just like uh, they do in our lives, in any alliance that compromises our high calling as servants of God is destined to be shipwrecked. We need to watch the company we keep. 
because like I said, when we started this, too often we'll end up getting influenced by them if we're not careful. So Jehoshaphat was a good king, one of the greater kings of the nation of Judah, but his business relationships were not the greatest. So let's learn from that. Amen. Father, we thank you for your message tonight. We thank you that we see the victory, Lord, that you, you can give us as believers, Lord, as we keep worshiping you and praising you, Father God. And we just do ask for more victories in our lives. But we ask that we can be, have more faithfulness towards you, Lord, more commitment towards you, and that we would seek your face more and more every day, Father God. And we just give you glory for that, Lord. We ask for your uh, blessings over those here tonight for safe travels home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.